Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 7. As we return now, after a couple weeks off for Easter and Palm Sunday, we return to the story of God's people in the days of the prophet Samuel. How can we go from lamentation to rejoicing when we have brought on ourselves calamity? How do we go from mourning to joy when it's our own sin that brings us sorrow and misery? That's the issue before Israel, and it's at times an issue for each of us. Samuel shows us the way forward. Let me invite you to consider that as we uh, hear God's word from 1 Samuel chapter 7, beginning at verse 2 through the end of the chapter. This is the word of God. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah, drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. 
Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. Amen. Thus ends this reading of God's holy and inspired word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this word. Grant that it would be a light for our eyes, a lamp to our path. Be, we pray, our teacher and show us your glory and your grace and mercy. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In about 1070 BC, Israel suffered profound oppression by the Philistines. National calamity had come following spiritual apostasy. They had abandoned the Lord and their sins, which were their own fault, had brought great trouble from the nearby nations. They needed not just national renewal and rescue, but spiritual renewal. How do you get that? How do you go from the sadness of verse 2, lamenting for 20 years, to the happiness and peace at the end of the chapter? Samuel says, you get there this way, by repentance, by reliance, and by remembrance. And I want you to think about those three things in the first place. You get there by repentance. Samuel preaches to them in verses 2 through 6 the necessity of repentance toward the Lord. He calls them, notice that language, to turn. He says, if you are indeed turning to the Lord. This is the language of repentance. I want to highlight four things about that repentance. It's slow, it's sincere, it's smashing, and it's strange. It was slow for them in coming. It doesn't have to be slow, but it was slow. For the the last few chapters, actually, now we haven't been in Samuel for a couple of weeks, so it even seems longer. But for the last few chapters, we've heard nothing of Samuel. Chapters 4, 5, and 6, the the narrative story of those chapters, he doesn't appear. You think at the end of chapter 3, having heard of his birth and his growth and his installation as the prophet of God, you would think that he would now be center stage, but he gets sidelined, so to speak, in the narrative. The last mention of him is is chapter 4, verse 1. It's the tail end of the narrative of 3 where it says, and so the word of Samuel came to all Israel. You have this expectation that the word of the prophet has come to the people and they're going to pay attention. And what you find in chapters 4, 5, and 6 is that the people aren't paying attention to the word of the Lord. They're not listening to their God. And, And it doesn't go well with them. The Philistines attack, Israel loses. They try some other scheme, Israel gets slaughtered. They're miserable. And then finally, God takes the ark out of their hands to the Philistines. And then he troubles the Philistines to show them he's the true God. But he brings the ark back to Israel. And then some of the Israelites gaze at the ark against the law of God. And they die. These are miserable people. And it says that for a long time, 
20 years, they lamented after the Lord. Sorrow and sadness for their own sin. Now, I think it's not that Samuel wasn't during this time preaching or that he wasn't ministering to the people, but the people weren't responding. Individuals may have been listening, but as a corporate congregation, as a large community, it could be said they weren't. They were lamenting. And I just want to pause there and mention that much of the work of even gospel ministry takes place in what you might call the out seasons. Why do I say that? Paul tells Timothy to be ready in season and out of season to preach the word. What is it to preach in season? It is to preach when people are hungry for the word. They're eager to hear. They want to grow in grace. They want to know the Lord. What is it when it's an out season? When the people you're preaching to are cold, deaf, stagnant, disinterested. Sometimes we preach and counsel and people take it to heart. And other times we wait patiently while sorrow and sadness does its work of softening the heart that the ear might one day be open. Repentance may be slow in coming, but here it does finally come. Samuel waited long for it. He, we have to believe, was faithful in his ministry of preaching. And eventually he saw the fruit of true repentance. And notice, the sec- secondly, that repentance needs to be sincere. This is what he calls them to. All the house of Israel is mourning after the Lord. That's not necessarily repentance is what we're saying. You can have tears and you can have sobs, but not be repentant. A uh, uh, pastor, uh, old pastor and professor of mine said, told the story of a spy in World War II, true story, who worked for the Allies and the French underground in enemy-occupied France during the German occupation. This spy traveled all over France unimpeded. Why? How? There were two friendly French policemen, not part of the underground, but friendly to the Allies, who simply handcuffed him between them and then drove him all over France. And whenever they encountered a German patrol or some kind of roadblock, the Germans would see the handcuffs and let him go. But the handcuffs didn't necessarily make the man a prisoner. And so an Allied spy went all over France, undetected by the Germans. Handcuffs don't necessarily make a prisoner. And mourning, crying, and lamenting doesn't necessarily make repentance. It needs to be from the heart and include action. If you are indeed turning to the Lord, With all your heart, he says, put away those foreign gods. You need to do something with it. As the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation. But worldly grief just produces death. What kind of grief do we have? Is it productive of repentance? Real repentance bears fruit. If you are returning, he says, he doesn't just assume 
that their emotion means they are. They may only feel sorry for themselves, but not sorry for the sins that brought about their suffering. Notice also, not only does it need to be sincere, it needs to be smashing. That is, it needs to be idle smashing repentance. If you are indeed turning back to the Lord, put away the foreign gods from among you, put away the Baals and Ashtoreth, he says. These, well, frankly, non-gods, since there are no other true gods, but these are the gods of the Canaanites. And that means more than just sort of, you know, chucking them away into the trash can. It may mean do at least that. But this is going to be difficult work to put away these foreign gods because these foreign gods had a strong grip on them. Why? What are these Baals and Ashtoreths you see there? Baal is the male deity. Ashtoreth is the female deity. That's who they represent. And in Canaanite church services or worship of Baal and Ashtoreth, if you wanted to have a, a kind of sexual perversion, illicit Sex. You didn't have to go to dirty movies or hunt for illicit encounters on Tinder or Backpage or Ashley Madison. No, you went to church. And you went to church because these were fertility gods. And you went to church to engage in their holy prostitutes and relations with the prostitutes as representatives of the deities. And the way that the Canaanite religion explained it was this. What you're doing is a kind of enacted prayer. When you engage in relations with the girl at the sanctuary, you see, that's a cue to Baal. That Baal ought to engage in relations with Ashtoreth so that fertility, rain, and fruitfulness on the earth may come to the people. And as one put it, the combination of liturgy and orgy was attractive. It seemed convenient to have the chapel and the brothel all in one place. This is Canaanite religion. Now, when you have that kind of false religion among the Canaanites, and it's present among the Israelites, you can imagine the kind of grip that would have on the heart. This isn't easy stuff just to turn your back on, as some of you know. Not because you made it worship, because you know it's strength. And there's a kind of uprooting that needs to take place, a smashing of idols. You need to throw them away. That's a good place to start. I mean, many a repentant person has thrown away a stash of porn or some kind of uh, ungodly, unhealthy romance novel. But I'll just ask you, what is your idol this morning? It is whatever you give your affection to more than you give your affections to the Lord himself. What is your idol? It is what you value most as important ahead of the importance of the Lord. That for you is a rival deity. We could talk about different kinds. I'll just pick on me. How about entertainment? We spend a lot of money and invest a lot of time, some of us do, in the enjoyment of entertainment. And not all of it's wrong. The danger is when, we make, uh, when, it, when it makes bad things seem good, and then it teaches our heart to think bad things are good, or good things are 
bad. Things that ought to turn us away in disgust instead become desirable. And that's always a danger. There are some things you shouldn't watch simply because they are evil. And you ought not see them with your eyes, support them with your money, or learn to love them with your heart. The Apostle Paul says, sorry, the Apostle James, James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. The world is always trying to ensnare our hearts. The Canaanite religion had got a grip on the Israelite heart. And repentance meant smashing that idol. Notice it's also a strange repentance. You are to put away these other gods and serve the Lord alone. That's unusual. That's strange. Why? These other gods didn't care if you worshipped and served the Lord too. They didn't care whoever else you worshipped or served as long as you also worshipped and served them. You could serve Baal and Ashtoreth in the ancient Near East and many others. That didn't upset them. Just as in the days of Jesus, in the time of the Roman Empire, you could worship and serve many deities. And even add Christ to the mix. But they were happy as long as you pinched a little incense to burn to Caesar as God. While you also went along and worshipped Jesus as God. They were an open-minded, pluralistic kind of people, kind of like the world in which we live in today. They would have agreed, perhaps, with the notion that all religions of the world are equal, all are headed in the same direction, all are saying the same thing, or if they're not saying the same thing, it's still fine if you do them all. But the God of Israel says you are not to. The God of Israel is a jealous God. Israel thought they could worship the Lord God and the Canaanite gods as well. And the Lord God says through Samuel, put them away. Why is the God of Israel so exclusive this way? Because he's a jealous God. And why is he jealous? He's jealous because he loves his people. And like any good husband who truly loves his wife, he wants her affections for him above any other man. He wants no rivals to her affections. And so he demands of them intolerantly, we might say, that they serve him alone, put away these foreign gods. How do you get the power to do that? If there is some idol, some sin, some enticement that has a grip on your heart, it is not the power of the moral command that will get you to do this. I could tell you not to do that till I am blue in the face, as I can tell myself not to. And that will not change me. The law tells me what I ought to do. It does not change the heart. What does? It is the sight of something better. It is, in fact, the sight of the glory and grace of the Lord that helps us leave behind that which is worthless, that which is useless, that which is less. Turn to the Lord, he says. 
turn to him with a sizable affection. And those other affections can melt away. You get rid of darkness by turning on the light. You got to see the glory of the Lord and his grace if you're going to let your grip on other things go. And lest you think that this is just Old Testament religion and Christians don't struggle with this or aren't called to this kind of thing. It's not just what Samuel says to the people of God in his day. It's what Jesus says to us. It's Jesus who said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. You translate that in the Old Testament language and what is it? It's you shall have no other gods before me. It's the first commandment. You shall have no other God before my face. This is what we are to repent of. You get an illustration of this when Jesus encounters that rich young man in the gospel stories who came to Jesus and said, what must I do to, to inherit eternal life? And Jesus mentioned a half a dozen of the commandments and the man said, all these I've kept from my youth. I've, I've done that since I was a kid. And Jesus looked at him and it says, and Jesus loved him, it says, and Jesus said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell everything you have, give to the poor, and then come follow me. Now, some people think Jesus is saying that to everybody, that everybody has to sell everything. That's not what he's doing. This was his particular way of getting at that man's particular problem. Why? Because that man was really breaking the first commandment. If Jesus had said to him, you know, it's fine, you've kept all those commandments, that's great, but you've really broken the first commandment, they probably would have had a very unprofitable debate about whether or not the man had broken the first commandment. He would have insisted, no, I haven't broken the commandments. But instead, Jesus focused on this particular, take everything you have, sell it, give it to the poor, and follow me. And the man, it says, did what? He went away sad, for he had great wealth. There's hope because he went away sad, but he did go away, and Jesus let him go. What did Jesus expose in the man? He exposed the man to himself. He taught the man that the problem was not that he had great wealth, but that great wealth had him. And that was his first love. There was something in the place of the supreme affection he ought to have for God. And so you've got to smash that idol. This is the life of a Christian. When Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, as Martin Luther put it, he meant that the whole life, the entire Christian life long is to be one of ongoing, continuing repentance, asking ourselves the question, what is my first love? Who is my first love? Have I abandoned him? Have I left him? Do I need to put away some other God again that I might love him above all? That's what repentance is. 
here in this story, their repentance was accompanied by, verse 6, fasting. They had no command that they had to fast, but they did that to set themselves apart. It can be an aid, aid by treating the body with deprivation to give the attention of the heart to the Lord. And they poured out water. Nobody quite knows why. So I'll just suggest that possibly as a symbol of the pouring out of their hearts before their Lord uh, for their sins. And then it goes on to say, and they confessed their sins. These are the things that accompanied their repentance. Confession is what we do Sunday by Sunday here in worship. We come before our king, we acknowledge his greatness, and then we acknowledge that once again this week, we have sinned, we have had our faults and our failures, and we want and need his forgiveness. Forgiveness which he delights to give to the repentant. So because the Christian life is one long life of repentance, turning to the Lord from the heart to serve him only, I'll ask you, is that repentance present in your life? That's the first thing Samuel preaches to them. Now the second thing Samuel does is he leads them in desperate reliance on God's mercy. Verses 7 to 11. He gathers them at Mizpah. This is a kind of mountaintop. But then the Philistines hear about it. because, And then they think it's a military revolt against them as overlords. And they wouldn't stand for that. So they organize themselves as an army against Israel. But Israel isn't prepared to do battle. What's Israel going to do? Well, we know that in the past what they've done is they've said, let's get our army together and let's go fight. And they were defeated, chapter 4. And when that didn't work, what did they do? They said, let's get the Ark of the Covenant and bring it out with our army and God will be forced to fight for us. He wouldn't dare dishonor himself by having his own Ark defeated in battle. And so what did they do? They, they sought to use God. They were superstitious, uh, genie belly rubbing kind of religionists. And God didn't do what he wanted them to do. Neither time, however, did they go to Samuel the prophet and say, what should we do? What does God want us to do? And so every time they were too cocky, reliant on themselves and defeated in battle. But here it says in marked contrast that they were afraid of the Philistines. Why were they afraid? It has never been mentioned previously that they were afraid of the Philistines. Now they're afraid, and they're afraid because they've been humbled. They've been humbled, and they've acknowledged their sin, and they realize they can't rescue themselves on their own. They have no other hope but God himself. And so at verse 8, they plead to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us. Before, they were saying things like, get the ark. Now they're saying, Samuel, pray for us. Before, they thought the furniture of God was going to help them. Now they know it is God himself 
that they need. They needed desperate prayer that they might trust in a powerful God. They didn't have overwhelming numbers to defeat the Philistines. They didn't have better military tools or tactics. They didn't have some kind of trick play they could pull out of their back pocket. They hadn't come to Mizpah to prepare for war. The only thing they had as a defenseless people was the Lord and the prophet of the Lord Samuel, the judge of the Lord governing the nation, to call out to the Lord for the Lord's mercy. And there is an application point to be made there for the people of God and the church of God. God frequently brings us to a point of desperation where we have nowhere to go. We're backed into a corner and we feel empty of all personal resources to do anything to help ourselves. And when he does that, he has us right where he wants us calling out to him desperately, Lord, I need you. And in the case of a congregation and a church, and as we look around at the needs of a congregation as, as a pastor or as elders or, or as teachers of children or as parents of our own children, as believers, we look around and we say, there's a problem and what do we need? We need a program to fix it. There's a problem and what do we need? We need an administrative band-aid. To shape things up. Uh, There's a problem and we just need to do something. And sometimes we don't need to do something. We just need to be desperate in prayer. To call out the Lord and to stand back and see the salvation of our God. Don't you find that true in your own life at times? Or are you not a praying person? Now they say to Samuel, cry out for us. That's good. They're trusting in God's omnipotence, his almighty power. It doesn't matter that they're weak, that they're helpless. That's good. Their God isn't. And so what happens? They don't rely on their own strategies to save themselves. They don't rely on their own schemes and plans. They simply trust in the Lord and the Lord thundered. And he sent the Philistine army into confusion and terror. And Israel simply just had to mop up as they fled away. And we ourselves in our own day have our own spiritual battle. Not a war against flesh and blood, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 6. People are not our enemy as the people of God. But we do fight against spiritual forces of evil and our weapons remain spiritual weapons. Paul at Ephesians says, put on the whole armor of God, stand firm in the truth and in righteousness, use the shield of faith to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one, take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray unceasingly. That's what he says to do. The world says that's absolutely useless. That's silly. Stand in truth and righteousness. Hold on to your faith. um, Trust in God's word and pray. That's nothing. But this actually is the way that the battles are won and the church is built and the kingdom of Christ advances. Because by each of these we put our hope in the Lord and not in ourselves. Notice also that what they relied on and what he taught them to rely on 
was not merely their own prayer, but his prayer on their behalf. They don't just simply cry out to the Lord themselves. They call to Samuel and say, Samuel, acknowledging him to be their leader, acknowledging him to be the prophet, acknowledging him to be God's representative to them and their representative before God. And they say, Samuel, you call out to the Lord on our behalf. Samuel fulfills here an office in Israel as the intercessor for the whole nation. And you and I have an intercessor, and it's not Samuel. But in Samuel, you have a picture of one who cries out to the Lord, God Almighty, on our behalf, who intercedes for us. And who is that? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. He always lives to intercede for us. You remember Simon Peter, before Jesus was crucified, Jesus said, Satan has asked for you to sift you like wheat. Those are plural. He has asked for you all, Simon Peter, all of you disciples, to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, singular, you, Simon Peter. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Jesus is saying, Simon, I acted like a priest for you. You're going to be tested, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And Peter's faith did not fully and finally fail, but he was sustained. However weak, however much he denied the Lord, however wrong and sinful he was, he was sustained by the Lord and recovered by the Lord that he might strengthen the people of the Lord. Because a high priest interceded for him. And your faith likewise. If it remains steadfast in the Lord. If you have not apostatized. If you have not chucked Jesus and turned your back and walked away. Your faith is sustained by one who intercedes for you too. And so we rely upon the Lord. And thirdly, Samuel invites them to remember God's help. This is verse 12 and following. The Lord answered Samuel's prayer. He sent a thunderstorm. The Philistines scattered. The Israelites mopped up. In verse 12, Samuel, to commemorate, takes a stone, sets it up between Mizpah and Shen. That word Shen means tooth. It was some kind of natural formation, tooth crag looking kind of thing. And he set a stone there, and a stone he named Ebenezer. That's a strange name, I know. But it means stone of help. And he said... To this point, the Lord has helped us. And what is he doing? He's wanting Israel to not forget, but for Israel to remember the Lord. Remembering the Lord's victories on our behalf, the Lord's mercies to us in our time of need, is an important part of our joy and peace in this world of misery. Ralph Davis tells a I, I think a uh, um, strange and humorous story about dating his wife, Barbara. He says, when my wife and I began dating during our college years, I would offer her a half a stick of gum. He goes on to say that he himself was worried about his own breath and just kind of was paranoid about that, but that it would be rude to chew a stick of gum in front of her and not offer her one. So he'd always hand her half that stick of gum. Well, he found out later, years later, perhaps after the rock was on the finger, That unbeknownst to him, she kept all her gum. 
She'd go home and she'd tack it to an 8 by 12 and under it she'd write the date on which he had given her and she had chewed with him that gum. I know, it's so crazy. It was, but people are crazy when they're in love. It was her, he says, unique, granted, unique way of remembering their early courtship. Her gumboards stirred up memory, and memories stir up love and produce appreciation. That's what monuments do, too. And this is a monument, this stone of help is a monument to the Lord's deeds for the people of God, meant to stir their trust in Him, love for Him, thankfulness to Him, and hope in Him for the future. You and I don't know what the future holds. And in this life, sometimes we barely keep our head above water. Sometimes we simply live in skies that are gray. And we don't feel the sunshine of the Lord's presence and love. And we feel stretched and we feel thin and we feel like butter, too little butter spread across too much toast, right? And you and I don't know what the future holds. But if you can remember that the goodness and mercy of the Lord pursued you in the past, and was your rescue, then you might draw from that hope that in the future the Lord's mercy and goodness will pursue you all the days of your life and you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We need to remember his mercies. That stone had a strange name, Ebenezer. If you remember the story, this is the second time we've encountered that name. The first was at the location of the battle 20 years before at which Israel lost to the Philistines some many miles to the northwest. Yet there, God didn't come to the help of Israel and because of their unbelief in him, he let them be conquered by the Philistines. And the name there was a kind of mockery in a sense of Israel's failure. God has helped. They sure didn't feel help. But now, acting in faith, they experience his help. And Samuel calls it Ebenezer, as if to say all that was lost in the past, in the first Ebenezer event, was restored to the repentant in this second Ebenezer event. And you and I, as Christians, have a greater Ebenezer event. It is called the cross. And this communion table celebrates the cross where we can say, Hitherto the Lord has been our help. Where we can say with the Apostle Paul, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all? things and so you find here in samuel as the narrative ends it ends not with lament but with peace restored they're no longer serfs to the philistines border towns from ekron to gath have been reclaimed along and placed under israel control land that had been once taken is now restored and there was it says even peace with their neighbors 
all of the Amorites, which is a kind of larger category for all their neighbors. Why had this change come? Because of the Lord's favor, they enjoyed national renewal because of spiritual renewal. And so it was that Samuel at the close for the rest of his ministry traveled through towns throughout Israel leading them and judging them and circling them. And what might he have said to them? It doesn't say, but I think he would have at least said, if you are returning to the Lord to serve him only, put away the foreign gods from among you. For hitherto the Lord has helped us. And so I say to all of us what I think he said to them. Go on repenting towards him. Go on relying in desperate prayer on his mercy. And go on remembering his mercy and rescue. That will give you hope for the future. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of your son and the promise that we are safe in him. And bound for glory, may he be our rock as we walk our pilgrimage. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand.